Thanks, Michael. Good morning. Uh, my name is Mike, and it's uh, my privilege to, to preach on this passage to us this morning. Uh, but it's a fairly challenging passage. I think you might have felt the sting of that as we heard it read just then. So let me pray uh, that God would soften our hearts and open our minds and our ears and our eyes as we, uh, we receive this word today. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks and that we have these words of Jesus here before us this morning, as challenging as they might be. We do pray, Father, that we would not only be challenged by them, but that we'd also be comforted by the promise of life that we find in these words. In fact, Father, we pray that you'd help us to see this morning that being gathered to Jesus does mean life and salvation. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, now, a little disclaimer, I don't uh, condone or endorse the behaviour of the following story. Uh, but when I was a, a teenager, I was with a, a group of friends and uh, we were desperately rushing to catch a train from Wynyard to Central Station. And we were desperately rushing because we were trying to make our way to a concert uh, festival, in fact, that was going to be at uh, UTS, just down the road here, and we really wanted to make the opening act, it was one of our, our favourite bands, I can't remember which one it was at the time, but, you know, I think kind of classic 90s Australian rock band. Uh, and so we got, to, we got to Wynyard Station, we ran through the ticket stalls, we went down the stairs, only to find the train that we needed to catch, the doors were closing and the train was about to pull away from the station. And at that moment, I remember thinking, we've missed it. But a friend of mine, brave or foolish, dove, dived through those doors and then jammed the doors open with his body as the train was pulling away from the station and then yelled out, quick everyone, jump in. I then found myself running alongside a moving train with five of my friends in front of me, each one diving over my friend's body into the train. And it's amazing the kind of thoughts that kind of go through your head at that moment. I mean, I think the first one was... I can't believe I'm doing this. This feels a bit like a movie. It's exciting, but I think I might die. And then, of course, you can see the end of the station coming very quickly, and you've got a decision to make. Am I going to dive in, or am I going to hit the wall? What's going to happen? And, of course, I dived in just before the end of the station, hit the floor, sprawled over to see the doors close behind me, and off we went through the tunnel. Even as I recount it now, and if my mum's watching on uh, YouTube, she might be hearing this for the first time, uh, all of a sudden, you, you start to see kind of the ridiculous nature of, of even that whole experience, right? Um, there's a longer version that I can tell you at morning tea because a few other things happened. Uh, but I think the urgency of that story matches the metaphor that Jesus gives us here in this passage in Luke chapter 13. What does he talk about? He talks about a narrowing door. He talks about the door to salvation being open, but it's narrow and the train is leaving the station. The big question that Jesus confronts us with this morning is will you get on board or will you miss the train? Will you miss the concert? Will you miss the feast in the kingdom of God? Now, this whole section in Luke's Gospel has been carried by this theme of time and urgency. It's about understanding the times that you live in, we heard last week. It's about being ready in this time, about being faithful and about being expectant for the return of Jesus, for the kingdom. It's about making a choice now in this time before uh, you know, being healed by Jesus rather than waiting on the other six days of the week. It's about being saved today. 
Now, the emphatic, the emphatic message in this part of Luke's Gospel is now is the time to get right with God. And that is Jesus' urgent message. And again here, as Jesus is going through the towns and through the villages, teaching as he makes his way to Jerusalem, someone asked him this question in verse 23. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And Jesus responds with this same metaphor of urgency. Verse 24. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Right? The door to salvation is open, says Jesus, but it is narrow, and I think that raises for us a big and confronting question. Will you make the effort to enter? That's the question we have to face. But then I guess the second question is, what does it even look like to enter through the narrow door? And I think in this passage, Jesus illustrates what that looks like in four different ways. Uh, and the first way, what it means to enter through the narrow door, is relationship. So verses 24 to 27, let me read them out for you again. Jesus said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door to us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then they will say, We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. Now Jesus says, Make every effort. Do everything you can to enter. But what is the effort you are required to make? You might think it would be being a good person or a good citizen or a rule keeper. You might think it's to know all the scriptures and to know all about God's Messiah. I mean, that's what the, the Pharisees do, but it's not. What is the effort that you are required to make? The effort is relational effort. It's to personally know and be known by the master. Right? You only learn and know the scriptures and learn all about God's Messiah in order to know the God who stands behind those words, to be in relationship with him. It is completely a relational endeavour. Right? And you see this in the response of the house owner. What does he say? I don't know you. You are unfamiliar to me. I, I don't even know where you come from. You, you're not from my family. You're not from my place of origin. But the people protest, we know you, right? We ate and drank in your presence. <clears throat> you taught in our streets, in our, our wide open places. But of course, knowing about someone and being a spectator of someone else's life is quite different to knowing somebody personally. Now, I mean, I don't want to brag and put tickets on myself, but I have had uh, breakfast with Hugh Jackman and uh, I've been to see uh, one or two AFL games with Tom Cruise. Uh, and, you know, by that I mean I had breakfast in the same cafe where Hugh Jackman was sitting some tables away and uh, Tom Cruise was sitting quite a few rows behind me. Um, but, you know, we were at the same cafe, we were at the same game 
Uh, and, you know, I've seen a lot of their movies. I can tell you a lot about both of those different people. I've seen them interviewed. I've heard a lot about their families. I've even heard them speak in the public square. I've seen them interviewed on Oprah and, and so on. I can even sing some of Hugh Jackman's songs, maybe at morning tea again as well. But just imagine for a moment that I went up and uh, knocked on Hugh's door and said, hey, Hugh, uh, I know who you are and... Uh, Look, I'd just like to come in, maybe have a cup of tea, kind of shoot the, shoot the breeze and just you know, have a bit of a chat about life, maybe hang out and swim in your big pool or something like that. And then I rattled off my credentials and said, I'm a really good person, I'm a great citizen, I do some things for charity, I go to church, there's a whole bunch of great things that you know, would make me a, a wonderful person for you to invite inside. I mean, can you imagine what his response would be to me? I don't know you. Right? It sounds great, all those things you've done. I'm glad you had uh, breakfast at the same cafe that I was at. That's wonderful. We like the same food. But I, I actually, I don't know you, even if you do all these wonderful and great things. And, and can you see how that's kind of the same as what Jesus is saying here? Right? Some people get really caught up in the whole uh, idea of heaven and hell as if they're these kind of abstract destinations for a life that is either poorly lived or a life that is well lived. And if you think about heaven and hell like that, then salvation is really just about your merit and your deeds. It's about how well you've lived your life or how poorly you've lived your life. But salvation is relational. That's what it is, firstly and foremost. To enter through the narrow door is to personally know and be known by the Lord Jesus. To stand at his door and rattle off your credentials is to fundamentally misunderstand what you are being saved from and what you are being saved to. You are actually being saved from being out of fellowship with Jesus to be in fellowship with Jesus. That's what you are being saved from and to. And so I guess the hard question is, How are you making every effort to know Jesus personally? Not just about Jesus, not just to be a paparazzi of Jesus or a spectator of Jesus, not focused on your credentials as a good person, but focused on him and who he is and your relationship to him as Lord and Saviour. Because although salvation is about relationship, there is actually also a moral dimension to it as well. Right? It's not your morality that saves you, but your morality is judged by your commitment to Jesus. That's how Jesus judges it. You can see it here in verses 27 to 30. And so here's the second thing I think Jesus uses to illustrate entering through the narrow door. It's commitment. Verses 27 to 30. Uh, The master of the house will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There'll be weeping there and gnashing of teeth and you'll see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Now, you probably picked up on it, it's quite a harsh turn of phrase, that Jesus calls all those who are out of fellowship with him evildoers. 
He calls them workers of iniquity, workers of unrighteousness. And that just seems not only harsh, but doesn't it also seem just outright wrong and untrue? Because I know plenty of people who are out of fellowship with Jesus, they wouldn't call themselves Christians, but they are loving and they are kind and they are generous and they care for the oppressed and they, they pay their taxes and they are diligent in their work. And you see, if salvation is all about merit and credentials, then Jesus here really has missed the mark in calling them evildoers. I mean, how wrong can you be? But if salvation is not about merit, if salvation is actually about personal relationship with the Lord, well then turning your back on him is a great act of evil and unrighteousness. In fact, I think it actually compounds your immorality because not only do you live a good life with God's good gifts given to you, but you also take the credit for everything yourself. I did this all on my own. No thanks to Jesus. I don't need him. It's all been about me. But Jesus says, because of this, because of your lack of fellowship with him, you will stand outside looking through the window and kicking yourself. You'll see Abraham, you'll see Isaac, you'll see Jacob, you'll see all the prophets, you'll see all those hopeless and pitiful Christians feasting in the kingdom at the family table of Jesus. But you, as good and as nice as you are, will have missed out. Why? Because you didn't take the opportunity to commit to Jesus. It won't do to be a spectator of Jesus. It won't do to assume the morals of Jesus, but to reject the man himself. No, you and I stand in a very privileged position. We have the words of Jesus here in our own tongue. Uh, we live in a society that is kind of loosely based on Christian heritage, which means it's not illegal for either you or I to become Christians, to be in a relationship with him or commit to him. And so don't let the opportunity go by. And also don't give up in pursuing your commitment to the Lord Jesus, your relationship to him. I think Steve's testimony this morning was a, a wonderful reminder of one of the greatest things you can do is a, as a witness to the rest of the world is just stick with Jesus. Grow in your relationship with him. Right? People from all around the world are daily entering into the kingdom. They're coming from the east and the west, from the north and the south. So don't just sit out on the wide streets taking in the view of Jesus. Come in through the narrow door. And I think that's the hard question Jesus asks us here. How are you making every effort to seize the day and commit to Jesus here and now? That's the call that Jesus gives. Commit to him first and then commit to being a good person in the way of Jesus, following after the footsteps of Jesus because I think that's the third illustration of entering through the narrow door. It's the way of the cross. So have a look down with me at verses 31 to 33. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. 
He replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Now, I wonder if this really is what perhaps makes the door to salvation seem so narrow for us. Right? Salvation is about relationship with Jesus. Salvation is about commitment to Jesus. But that means committing to the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is the way to Jerusalem. And what will happen in Jerusalem? Well, that is where Jesus will be crucified. So back in Luke's Gospel, at a climactic point, back in chapter 9, verses 22, Jesus had this to say about his life, his mission. He said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Right? Jesus is going to his death, and what does it mean to follow after him, but to also go to your death? In the same chapter, back in uh, verse 51, he says, uh, Luke says of Jesus, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He set his face towards this mission, this goal, which is his death and his resurrection. And then here again in chapter 13, the goal of Jesus demonstrates the way to salvation and life. Right? Life will not be found in fulfilling your desires or in chasing your dreams or in doing what makes you happy. No, life is found in denying yourself, in taking up your cross, in following Jesus. Life is only found in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as Jesus found life eternal in his resolute discipline, obedience and sacrifice, so too fellowship with Jesus will require sacrifice, will require discipline and obedience. And not being swayed by the agendas of others, like, like the Pharisees and Herod might try to sway and direct Jesus, or even the norms and social directives of our own day. You can already start to see that this is a high demand that Jesus is asking of us. And it does come at great cost. In, in fact, just in the next chapter over in chapter 14, you might even see a little heading in your Bible that talk, talks about the cost of discipleship. That you should really weigh this up before you wade in. But this is a cost worth paying because it is the cost for life. Right? Whoever wants to hang on to their life, in fact, will lose it. Uh, the theologian uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book The Cost of Discipleship has this wonderful little phrase it chokes me up every time so I was going to leave it out but I'm going <laughs> to say it anyway when God calls a man he bids him come and die that is the call of Jesus for every person Jesus doesn't call you to live life in the security and certainty of your own desires. No, he calls you to die to all those things 
so that you might have life in his name. Because like Jesus, you go to the cross and you die for the guarantee of life in his name. So the big question is, how are you making every effort to follow the way of Jesus on the path to life? To deny yourself, but to do that in order to experience real life with the resurrected and eternal Lord Jesus. Because that is, in fact, what Jesus promises. If you focus on the call of Jesus, it can maybe be depressing. It might even sound like too much, but Jesus is promising life. And this is what I think is the, the fourth illustration that Jesus gives us. This is what it looks like to enter through the narrow door. It is to be gathered to Jesus to be narrowed down into Jesus' people. So verses 34 and 35. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, says Jesus, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is a beautiful image, isn't it? Right? Jesus longing. He's longing over the people of God, the people of Jerusalem, to gather them, even his enemies in the city of Jerusalem, to gather them together under his wings like a mother hen, gathers and protects her chicks. I think it's a captivating image of life and it's the sort of image that actually pops up a lot in the Old Testament. So Psalm 91, for example, has this to say, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks the darkness nor the plague that destroys at midday. Right? Isn't that a beautiful picture of life and safety, of tenderness and care, which I think is only made all the more striking by the very ugly context in which Jesus uses this metaphor. Right? Jesus holds out this picture of life and forgiveness, of salvation, only to be snubbed and rejected by an unwilling people are unwilling to want fellowship with Jesus, unwilling to commit to him, unwilling to follow the way of Jesus to life everlasting. No, they want life on their own terms. They're content to watch Jesus from a distance. And because of that, their house is left desolate. Now, perhaps here Jesus is referring to the house of the Lord, that's the temple, or maybe it's the house of Israel, the nation, but either way... Their rejection of Jesus is the rejection of life and fullness to instead become desolate. Right? They are now abandoned by the Lord because they have abandoned the one 
who longs to give them life, to gather them together under his wings. And isn't that the challenge for each one of us here today? Now, will you enter through the narrow door to receive the life that Jesus longs to give you? Will you make every effort? You see, the door is narrow, but life with Jesus is wide and spacious because being gathered to Jesus does really mean life and salvation. Now, it's interesting that Jesus finishes in this uh, section with a, a quote from Psalm 118. You know, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And that actually, when you read that psalm, is a psalm that covers many of the themes that we have uh, looked at here in chapter 13. It's not hard to imagine that these are words that would have been fresh in the mind of Jesus. And so we'll finish with Psalm 118 and some of those selected parts as well as a way to focus our minds on the call of Jesus and the life he offers. Psalm 118 says this, When hard-pressed, I called to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Open for me the gates, the door of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. And he has made his light shine on us with bows in hand, joining the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Amen.